0: American History TV. Next on Lectures in History, Boston College professor Seth Jacobs discusses President Lyndon Johnson and the factors that led him to escalate the war in Vietnam following the assassination of his predecessor, John F. Kennedy. Professor Jacobs argues that the 1964 presidential campaign against the hawkish Barry Goldwater influenced Johnson's desire to be seen as a strong, competent foreign policy president.
1: Okay, hey, welcome. Uh, today's subject is Lyndon Johnson. And Lyndon Johnson, I think it's fair to say, is best remembered by both historians and the general American public for one reason and one reason only. Vietnam. Johnson is the president most frequently identified with the Vietnam War. Although there is a famous quote from October 13th, 1967, in which Johnson said to the journalist Chalmers Roberts, quote, "This is not Lyndon Johnson's war. This is America's war. If I drop dead tomorrow, this war will still be here." end quote. And he was right. In a way, when he was out of office, the war continued. But the manner in which the war was fought and lost had been popularly ascribed to Lyndon Johnson. Vietnam is widely considered Lyndon Johnson's tragedy, failure, failure betrayal, etc., depending on your position on the ideological left-right political spectrum. Uh, There are two books in print right now by Larry Berman and George Herring, both entitled Lyndon Johnson's War, and both advancing compelling, if sometimes contradictory, analyses of the reasons behind the series of decisions made between 1964 and 1968 that led to the official justification for escalating the Vietnam War, the Tonkin Gulf incident or incidents of August 1964, The first landing of U.S. combat troops to defend the base at Da Nang in March of 1965, the drastically stepped-up escalation of American forces in-country over the next few years until the total was greater than half a million men, the changeover from a military strategy of base security to enclave strategy, to what was finally, and unfortunately, if accurately titled Search and Destroy, the shock and humiliation of the 1968 Tet Offensive, and ultimately Johnson's decision to turn down a request by General William S. Moreland, America's overall military commander in Vietnam, for 200,000 more troops, and Johnson's decision to withdraw from the 1968 presidential race. Certainly, there is ample justification for referring to Vietnam as Lyndon Johnson's war. Johnson escalated it more steeply than any other president, Troop levels in Vietnam peaked during Johnson's presidency. Most of the 58,000 Americans who died in Vietnam died while Johnson was in office. But there are also important senses in which the war was not Johnson's. Johnson did not make the commitment to preserve Vietnam from communism, or at least part of French Indochina from communism. That dates back to the Harry Truman administration. Johnson did not create The nation of South Vietnam as an independent political entity allied with the United States, that happened when Dwight Eisenhower was president. And most significantly, Vietnam was not Johnson's war in the sense that he really didn't want to fight it. As a whole slew of biographers and historians have made clear, the last thing Johnson wanted to be was a war president. He had a soaring domestic agenda, what he called the Great Society. Lyndon Johnson was by far the most liberal president we have ever had, if we are defining the term liberal in the manner it has come to be defined in the last hundred years or so. At bottom, Lyndon Johnson believed in the capacity of the federal government to effect positive change in the domestic arena. You understand nothing about the man if you don't get that. Johnson had experienced grinding poverty growing up in East Texas, and during the Depression, as a young man, Johnson had seen the capability of the federal government to alleviate, at least partially, the suffering of millions of Americans. This was his passion. This was what he hoped would be his presidential legacy, a legacy of reform in domestic politics. And he felt totally ignorant, totally ill-equipped in the field of foreign affairs, unlike his immediate predecessors, John F. Kennedy and Dwight Eisenhower, and his successor, Richard Nixon, all of whom excelled, or at least thought they excelled, at foreign policy and found domestic affairs kind of a chore and somewhat tedious. Johnson, who grew up idolizing Franklin Roosevelt, wanted fiercely to carry through what he viewed as the unfulfilled promise of the New Deal. He believed that World War II had nipped Roosevelt's economic and social reform in the bud. He wanted to carry it through to fruition. And Vietnam as Johnson recognized from the moment he was thrust into office was a potentially lethal obstacle on the path to creating the great society. The war was consuming a great deal of money, even in 1963, and Johnson had a domestic agenda that he knew was going to require massive funding. The war was a potential siphon, but it was also a commitment. And presidents don't renege lightly on American commitments, especially if those commitments are widely perceived to have been made by a recently assassinated American president. As Johnson put it in one of his most oft-quoted remarks, it's a remark I think that points up the distinctly gendered way in which he tended to conceptualize problems. Quote, I knew from the start I was bound to be crucified whichever way I moved. If I left the woman I really loved, the great society, in order to get involved in that bitch of a war on the other side of the world, then I'd lose everything at home, all my programs, all my hopes to feed the hungry and shelter the homeless. But if I left that war and I let the communists take over South Vietnam, then I would be seen as a coward and my nation would be seen as an appeaser and we would both find it impossible to accomplish anything for anybody, anywhere. End quote. And in a way, that's what he and America were obliged to do. As the journalist David Halberstam writes, quote, Lyndon Johnson had always dreamed of being the greatest domestic president of this century, and he had become, without being able to stop it, a war president, and not a very good one at that, end quote. So how did this happen? What happened to Lyndon Johnson and his great liberal dreams? I think a good place to start looking for an answer to that question is to examine some of the dynamics playing into the presidential election of 1964. Even though this election was a total blowout for Johnson, it was also one of the most significant electoral contests in American history. It's a contest in which the the candidates' views of the future of America diverged so wildly that it's one of the few elections where you can really see the electorate making a choice about which way it wants the country to move, at least in the next four years. An election doesn't have to be close to be fascinating. Look at Roosevelt versus Hoover in 1932, or Reagan versus Carter in 1980. Uh, as I stated, Johnson inherited the Vietnam commitment from Kennedy. When Kennedy was assassinated, there were roughly 16,000 U.S. advisors in South Vietnam, and the situation was crumbling. Duong Van Minh, who succeeded the recently assassinated South Vietnamese leader No Dinh Ziem, uh, Duong Van Minh proved an utter incompetent. He was a good military man, but he was no administrator. He only lasted a few weeks in office. He was succeeded by Nguyen Khan, who was slightly more competent, but also incredibly corrupt and prone to passing on misleading reports to his American benefactors. So that's one thing that Johnson has inherited when he suddenly becomes president. Significantly, Johnson also inherited the Kennedy team, as David Halberstam called them, the best and the brightest, As I'm sure you know, it's customary for a new president to choose his own cabinet. But Johnson believed, and I think with some justification, I think you can see why he would feel this way, he believed that his transition into office would be eased. He believed the national trauma after the Kennedy assassination might be less acute if he kept Kennedy's cabinet at their posts. So Dean Rusk remained Secretary of State. McGeorge Bundy remained National Security Advisor. And most important... Robert McNamara remained Secretary of Defense. As we know from the testimony of many, many people at the time, Johnson was in awe, absolute awe, of these men. He felt terribly insecure in foreign affairs. As much of a master as he was in domestic affairs, he was a neophyte, a tenderfoot, when it came to foreign policy. And he felt that he needed the services of these brilliant and worldly advisors. Kennedy is killed in November of 1963. That means Johnson became president almost exactly a year before the next presidential election, which meant that he had to start running for office almost immediately. The area in which he knew he was weakest, in which his advisors knew he was weakest, the area in which a Republican opponent would be able to score the most points against him was in foreign policy, his utter lack of experience in foreign policy. Now, one event that everybody seems to forget in retrospect, which was terribly important at the time, was the communist Chinese explosion of a nuclear bomb in 1964. As you might imagine, this increased the perceived threat posed by China to the West. It lent a more ominous cast to China's support of North Vietnam. And there's a racist dimension to this as well. In the minds of most American policymakers, the Soviets, although unquestionably evil, were at least perceived as culturally and intellectually sophisticated enough that you could negotiate with them that they would appreciate the horrible effects of a nuclear war, that they would accept the eminently rational proposition that no gains could possibly be worth a nuclear confrontation. American policymakers at mid-century had a very different view of Asians. I ran into a document in the National Archives in College Park, Maryland, in which Eisenhower mused during the Kemoy and Matsu crisis of 1955 that, quote, you never can tell about these fanatical Easterners. They seem to be willing to sacrifice millions of lives to attain their objectives. Life comes cheap in the East, I guess, end quote. This is a standard theme of American Orientalism. It's a species of racism. So there was a real fear in the United States about possible nuclear war, especially with the communist Chinese, as the election of 1964 drew closer. And Johnson had a political dilemma here because obviously he had to appear tough on communism. No one could get elected president in America in 1964 if he was perceived as an appeaser. But Johnson also had to soothe Americans to assure them that he would not take any rash measures that might lead to a nuclear holocaust. It's a difficult balancing act. And on the latter score, The Republicans made matters easy for Johnson by nominating Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater, a hawkish cold warrior whose free market, small government philosophy could not have been more at odds with Lyndon Johnson's great society agenda. If Lyndon Johnson was unquestionably the most liberal president we've ever had, Barry Goldwater was without question the most conservative candidate for president of a major party since the 1920s, since Calvin Coolidge. Many political historians consider Goldwater the pioneer of the Reagan revolution. Goldwater made a famous remark during the 1964 campaign that, quote, we are told that many people lack skills and cannot find jobs because they did not have an education. That's like saying that people have big feet because they have big shoes. The fact is that most people who have no skills have had no education for the same reason, low intelligence or low ambition, end quote. But it was in the area of foreign policy management that Eisenhower and sorry that Johnson and Goldwater differed the most. Goldwater made a number of remarks in the campaign of 1964 that caused some pundits to dub him the Mad Bomber. For example, he remarked on one occasion, quote, "Just for fun, I'd like to lob a nuclear bomb into the men's room at the Kremlin." End quote. He actually said that. Why it had to be the men's room, I'm not sure, but it was a, that statements like that made a lot of people very nervous. Uh, And then, of course, there was Goldwater's famous address at the Republican National Convention when he accepted the nomination as Republican candidate for president. Goldwater stated on that occasion, quote, extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. Moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue, end quote. Which, when you think about it, is a really 60s thing to say. Malcolm X would have agreed with that statement. It's not often that you lump Barry Goldwater and Malcolm X together in the same category, and Malcolm X's definition of liberty was a little different than Barry Goldwater, but the principle is basically the same. Johnson made great political capital out of Goldwater's mad bomber image. Uh, Goldwater's campaign slogan in 1964 was, in your heart, you know he's right. Johnson backers lampooned that with, in your heart, you know he might, or in your guts, you know he's nuts. And Johnson's exploitation of Goldwater's mad bomber image reached its height in probably the most famous political television commercial in American history. Some of you may have seen this commercial. It's been re-shown hundreds of times, either in documentaries relating to Lyndon Johnson personally or to the 1960s in general. Let me show that commercial to you now.
0: Five, seven, six, Six, eight, nine, nine, ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. These are the stakes to make a world in which all of God's children can live or to go into the dark. We must either love each other, or we must die. Vote for President Johnson on November 3rd. The stakes are too high for you to stay home.
1: Not exactly subtle, but it was a tremendously effective political ad. But Goldwater did score some points off Johnson on foreign policy, on Johnson's alleged timidity in the face of communist provocation. Most notably, Goldwater taunted Johnson for not responding forcefully to Viet Cong and North Vietnamese brutality in South Vietnam. Why aren't you doing more to defend our South Vietnamese ally? Now, in light of the fact that Johnson just killed Goldwater in the greatest electoral triumph in history up to that point, it seems ludicrous that Johnson ever really doubted whether he was going to win that election. But there were at least two pressing issues that caused him to feel that in spite of everything he might lose, that Barry Goldwater might be elected president. For one, there was a colossal scandal involving Johnson's chief aide, Walter Jenkins, in October of 1964. Uh, Jenkins was caught in the men's room of a YMCA with another man in a sexual encounter. The scandal was splashed all over the newspapers. This, this was long before gay liberation. There's no glee in 1964. There's no Brokeback Mountain in 1964. Uh, it's a, pe- a period of intense homophobia. In fact, the American Psychiatric Association didn't remove the diagnosis of homosexuality from its Diagnostic and Statistical Manual's list of mental illnesses until 1973. That's obscene, but it's true. And if you look at the press at the time, not only do commentators just revile Jenkins for his alleged perversion, but they go on and on about how he's a security risk, how he's susceptible to blackmail. Virtually every story run on this affair asked to what extent has American security been compromised? What other security risks does Johnson have in his government? Johnson's campaign slogan, all the way with LBJ, Uh, acquired a new and unsought uh, connotation, Uh, Goldwater came up with the slogan, LBJ for moral decay, and this is just a month before the election. The other issue is more difficult to sum up. Uh, Goldwater's crowds, when he came to towns to speak, were hysterically adoring. He was treated like a rock star, The crowds may have only represented a small minority of white right-wing Americans, but they were misinterpreted by a lot of pundits and quite a few members of Johnson's own staff as representative of a larger groundswell for Barry Goldwater. The fact is, Goldwater was handsome and commanding. He was a skilled speaker with a feel for the well-chosen phrase, moderation in the pursuit of justice is no virtue. And Lyndon Johnson had to come to terms with the fact that he, Lyndon Johnson, was just about the most, just about the least, the least charismatic man ever to run for president. Although I might have to amend that statement in future lectures, but for now, I'll put him in that category. I know it's maddening to try to boil politics down to something as ephemeral as personality, but this was an issue with Johnson. It's been an issue for historians dealing with Johnson. It frequently affects scholarly judgment. Johnson once said to, uh, Former Secretary of State Dean Acheson in 1967, quote, I've done more for Negroes than any president since Lincoln. I've done more for the elderly than any president in history. I've taken millions of people out of poverty. Damn it, Dean, why don't people like me, End quote. And Acheson replied, quote, because, Mr. President, you are not a very likable man, End quote. <laughs> and it's true, he wasn't, he just wasn't. Some of us just aren't. That's just the way it is. And some of the most touching quotes you run across from Johnson have to do with his enormous insecurity, his need to be liked. If you listen to the Johnson White House tapes, he's got these lengthy conversations with uh, Press Secretary George Reedy in which he talks about how poorly he comes across. He describes himself as a hick in a freckle belly and a peckerwood surrounded by all these glittering Ivy League Kennedy people. And the really sad thing is he wasn't far wrong in terms of how he came across to many people. He just rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. He was a big, gross, overbearing, sweaty person. That's just the way he was. Dave Barry, the humorist, observes in a recent book of his, Lyndon Johnson tried his darndest by means of looking somber to the point of intestinal discomfort to convey integrity, but nevertheless made you think immediately of the large, comically dishonest Warner Brothers cartoon rooster, Foghorn Leghorn. As some of you know, Johnson taped all of his telephone conversations while he was president. I'd like to play a few minutes now from a telephone conversation he had with his uh, tailor, a certain Mr. Hagar, from August of 1964. This comes from a documentary about Johnson, and unfortunately, the makers of this documentary had actors standing in for the people speaking on the tape. It's very distracting. The actor standing in for Johnson doesn't look anything like Johnson, but this is Johnson's actual voice, circa August 1964. I'm not saying Johnson was drunk when he made this call. (laughs) I'm saying I hope he was drunk.
0: Go ahead, sir. Hello. Hello. Uh, Mr. Hager? Yes, it's Joe Hager. You all made me some real lightweight slacks. I need about six pairs for summer wear. I need, uh, I want them a half an inch larger in the waist than they were before, except I want two or three inches of stuff left back in there so I can take them up. I vary 10 or 15 pounds a month. The pockets, when you sit down in the chair, the knife and your money comes out, so I need it at least another inch in the pockets. Now, another thing, the crotch down where your nuts hang is always a little too tight. So when you make them up, give me an inch that I can let out there uh because they cut me it's just like riding a, a wire fence so leave me uh you never do have much margin there but see if you can't leave me about an inch from the where the zipper it, uh, ends uh around uh, under my back to my bunghole all right then so i can let it out there if i need to
1: if you get those to me i would sure be grateful <laughs> leader of the free world Uh, Incidentally, uh, Michael Beschloss, the Pulitzer Prize winning historian who edited the transcripts of the Johnson White House tapes and turned those transcripts into a book called Taking Charge, Beschloss cuts off that conversation right after, like I'm riding a wire fence. I don't know Michael Beschloss, I've never met him, but I suspect he said to his editor his publisher, look, I'm a Pulitzer Prize-winning historian, the word bunghole is not appearing in my book. (laughs) Anyway, okay, so you've got this unattractive, basically insecure guy who doesn't feel comfortable with foreign policy, who's inherited a collapsing situation in South Vietnam, who's inherited the Kennedy team of best and brightest advisors, and who believes that he needs some gesture in the realm of foreign policy to prove, number one, that he's not soft on communism, number two, that he's not a mad bomber like Gary Barry, Barry Goldwater, and number three, that he can act in a mature presidential fashion when dealing with a foreign policy crisis. Also, and this is very important, he wants a gesture that doesn't appear as though it's going to siphon off a lot of money from the great society programs which he's in the <coughs> process of constructing. He got his opportunity with what came to be known as the Tonkin Gulf Incident or Incidents of August 1964. Let me give you a little background here. In November of 1963, President then President John F. Kennedy had approved a plan with the relatively colorless name, Operations Plan 34A. This basically entailed South Vietnamese commandos conducting raids along the coastline of North Vietnam. These commandos would blow up defensive positions and supply dumps. They would ta- attack coastal radar transmitters. And they usually traveled in US Navy patrol boats. After hitting their targets, the teams would return to their base in Da Nang, South Vietnam. Now, it must be stressed that while the United States was supplying the South Vietnamese who carried out these assaults, while the United States was providing advice, no American soldiers were directly involved. But. But the US Navy was simultaneously carrying out top secret spy missions along the coast of North Vietnam. These were codenamed DeSoto missions, and these operations were conducted by large intelligence gathering destroyers that recorded North Vietnamese radio and radar signals. And frequently, these DeSoto missions were conducted in conjunction with the 34A raids, meaning the US Navy vessels would obtain information about coastal facilities in North Vietnam that would help the commandos of the 34A raids. Anyway, as early as May 1964, William Bundy, Johnson's Assistant Secretary of State for Far Eastern Affairs, uh, William Bundy came up with an early draft of a congressional resolution whereby the Congress would delegate sweeping powers to the president in a military emergency to take whatever action he deemed fit. Johnson wanted such a declaration because it would remove the war issue from the 1964 campaign, and it would give him a huge foreign policy victory in which Congress, out of sheer patriotism, would have to rally around the president. All that was needed was an inciting incident, and that was provided on August 2nd, 1964. What happened was this. On July 22nd, 1964, the destroyer Maddox was ordered to the Gulf of Tonkin on a DeSoto mission. And on July 30th, South Vietnamese commandos conducted heavy raids against two islands in the Gulf of Tonkin. The next day, the Maddox arrived in the Gulf of Tonkin. And on August 1st, it cruised within gun range of one of the two offshore islands that had been under attack by those South Vietnamese commandos. Then the Maddox returned to international waters. On August 2nd, three North Vietnamese torpedo boats attacked the Maddox. The Maddox opened fire and left one boat dead in the water. The other two were damaged, but managed to return to port. Now aboard the Maddox, radio intercepts of North Vietnamese traffic made clear that North Vietnam considered the Maddox part of the overall 34, oper- 34 operations taking place. It wasn't part of those operations. The two missions were unrelated, at least on this occasion. But one can certainly understand why the North Vietnamese leaders in Hanoi would have drawn the conclusion that they did. You've got these attacks taking place. You've got these destroyers offshore at the same time. Obviously, they're acting in conjunction. That is not an unreasonable deduction for Ho Chi Minh to have made. So that information was cabled back to the Pentagon. Johnson, however, reacted to this incident as though it was a totally unprovoked act of aggression by the North Vietnamese. We did nothing to cause this, it's just unprovoked. So Johnson personally ordered the Maddox back into the Gulf of Tonkin, and he ordered another destroyer, the USS C. Turner Joy, to reinforce the Maddox. For good measure, he also ordered two U.S. aircraft carriers into the Gulf of Tonkin. And on August 4th, 1964, On an extremely stormy night in the Gulf of Tonkin, radar and sonar operators on board the Maddox and the Turner Joy reported a sea just alive with hostile torpedoes. The enemy is firing at us from all directions. So the guns of both the Maddox and the Turner Joy blazed into the night. A few hours later, though, when the storm (laughs) subsided and the sun came up, no one was sure there had been any enemies out there at all. Uh, Captain John Herrick, who was the commander on board the Maddox, immediately radioed the headquarters of the Commander-in-Chief Pacific, quote, review of action makes many reported contacts and torpedoes fired appear very doubtful. No actual sighting by Maddox suggests complete evaluation before any further action, end quote. And Admiral Ulysses S. Sharp, who was the Commander-in-Chief Pacific, passed that message on to the Pentagon. So it went to Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara. McNamara sat down with the Joint Chiefs of Staff to discuss whether or not it could be concluded on the basis of the evidence that a second attack against US ships had in fact taken place in the Gulf of Tonkin. And during their deliberations, while McNamara was talking with the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Naval intelligence provided McNamara with a batch of intercepts of North Vietnamese radio flashes that convinced McNamara that yes, a second attack had taken place. To this day, there is no persuasive evidence that a second attack occurred, although oceans of ink have been spilled, arguing about whether it did or not. I've read a lot of analyses, probably too many analyses, of the Tonkin Gulf incident or incidents. I am absolutely confident in asserting that the second alleged incident was an illusion. The best study of this controversial episode is Edwin Moisey's Tonkin Gulf and the Escalation of the Vietnam War, and I can recommend many other texts if you're interested. For a long time, Secretary of Defense McNamara and others insisted that intercepted North Vietnamese radio messages referring to combat between North Vietnamese patrol boats and US destroyers proved that there was a second attack. But when the National Security, final, National Security Agency finally declassified the full set of its Tonkin Gulf intercepts in 2005 and 2006, it became clear that there were some glaring translation and dating problems with the August 4th messages. Those messages were describing the combat on August 2nd. They had been misinterpreted to describe a later encounter. Basically, this was a rush to judgment. And you may ask, why did it take so long for the stuff to become declassified? That's a really good question. I'd like to know the answer myself. I don't. Uh, It doesn't square with my notions of a democracy. A more deliberate approach under these circumstances would have cleared things up, I think. It would have revealed first, number one, that there had been no second attack. There was no second Tonkin Gulf incident. And number two, the first attack was almost certainly a case of the North Vietnamese retaliating against what they reasonably thought was an act of aggression on the part of the United States. So they weren't acting in an unprovoked manner. This was an understandable piece of behavior on their part that ought to have been forgiven. The only problem is Lyndon Johnson was in a hurry. He wanted to demonstrate his firmness. He wanted to demonstrate his presidential resolve to the American people, because after all, the American people would be voting soon. So on August 4th, the same day as the second alleged attack, Johnson met with a number of congressional leaders and informed them that he was going to submit a resolution to Congress that would grant him wide leeway in responding to this unprovoked act of war on the part of the North Vietnamese. Johnson did not tell the congressional leaders about the 34A operations, which were still secret, and he described the North Vietnamese attacks as completely unprovoked. We did nothing to deserve this attack. Long story short, the Tonkin Gulf resolution sailed through Congress with minimal debate. It passed unanimously 416 to nothing in the House of Representatives and 88 to 2 in the Senate. Only two senators, Wayne Morse of Oregon and Ernst Gruning of Alaska, voted against it. And only Wayne Morse, who's kind of my hero in this episode, only he subjected an administration figure to difficult questioning. Morse gave Johnson quite a fight for three days. On August 5th, 6th, and 7th, he railed against the resolution. He challenged the administration's account of what had happened in the Gulf of Tonkin. He predicted that Johnson would use the resolution as a functional declaration of war. If you read them today, Morse's lengthy diatribes are almost uncanny in their accuracy. Everything that he said was going to happen, happened. Had those diatribes been delivered by somebody else, really anybody else, they might have influenced more members of Congress. To reconsider their position but wayne morse was not influential actually he was about the least popular legislator in washington people considered him a a sanctimonious bore who would drone on about trivial matters so when he confronted robert mcnamara on august 6 1964 he just didn't have any clout and when McNamara testified before the Senate, Morse asked him point blank whether the recent commando raids on North Vietnam were in any way related to the activities of the American destroyers in the Gulf of Tonkin. The South Vietnamese raids on North Vietnamese territory are taking place. Our destroyers are in the Gulf at exactly the same time. Are they related, Mr. Secretary of Defense? And McNamara responded in words that would come back to haunt him, quote, our Navy played absolutely no part in, was not associated with. Was not aware of any South Vietnamese actions, if there were any. The attacks on the ships Turner Joy and Maddox were deliberate and unprovoked assaults on American naval vessels on routine patrol in international waters. I say this flatly, this is a fact. End quote. Now, McNamara, in his memoirs, contends that he didn't know about 34A. He didn't know about the 34A raids. So, as he puts it, quote, my statement was honest but wrong. End quote. It could be argued that as Secretary of Defense, he ought to have known about the raids, and many historians have concluded that he's lying, that he did know about the raids, but he figured the war would be over quickly and no one would ever be the wiser. Although the Tonkin Gulf Resolution was never in jeopardy, Johnson told Senator William Fulbright, a fellow Democrat from Arkansas and the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, to secure passage of the Tonkin Gulf Resolution as fast as possible and by the largest possible vote. It's not enough for me to just get a win here. I need an overwhelming win. If possible, I need a unanimous win. Anything less, Johnson explained, would tarnish the image of unity that was so important to America's international reputation. So Fulbright, who would later become a ferocious critic of the Vietnam War, Fulbright portrayed the Tonkin Gulf Resolution as, in his words, quote, a moderate measure calculated to prevent the spread of war," end quote. And Fulbright went to work on doubters like Senator George McGovern of South Dakota and John Sherman Cooper of Kentucky. He allayed their fears that the president would be given excessive power. In particular, Fulbright went to work on Senator Gaylord Nelson of Wisconsin. Nelson wanted to introduce an amendment calling for efforts to, quote, avoid a direct military involvement in Southeast Asia, end quote. Fulbright told Nelson that, quote, such a codicil is superfluous, since the last thing we want is to become involved in a land war in Asia, end quote. So Nelson, to his everlasting regret, dropped his amendment. And as I said, the Senate approved the resolution with only Morris and Gruning dissenting. The House of Representatives passed it unanimously. And the language of the Tonkin Gulf resolution granted the president extraordinary latitude. According to the joint resolution, quote, the Congress approves and supports the determination of the president as commander in chief to take all necessary measures to repel any armed attack against the United States and to prevent further aggression, end quote. Wayne Morse, again my hero in this epi- episode, stated afterwards, to a virtually empty hall, he's holding forth to the ether because all of his colleagues have basically gone home, he said, uh, quote, we are in effect giving this president war-making powers in the absence of a declaration of war. I believe this to be an historic mistake, end quote. Ernst Gruning, the other guy who voted against the resolution, said, quote, all Vietnam is not worth the life of a single American boy, end quote. Johnson said of the resolution, quote, it's like grandma's nighty, it covers everything, end quote. And it totally demolished Barry Goldwater on the foreign policy front. If the president was a tenderfoot an amateur in foreign policy, then why had the Congress, of which Goldwater was a member, voted virtually unanimously to give him the power to wage war? He must have an admirable grasp of foreign policy, or the Congress wouldn't have abdicated its own responsibility and allowed this one man to decide what was militarily appropriate in Southeast Asia. More important, the Tonkin Gulf Resolution was a wonderful counterpoint to Barry Goldwater's mad bomber image. Because now that this has passed Congress so overwhelmingly, Lyndon Johnson had the authority to do whatever he wanted. He could invade North Vietnam. He could drop a hydrogen bomb on Hanoi. He could drop hydrogen bombs on Hanoi and Haiphong. So if he just ordered the sustained conventional bombing of the North, and if he just kicked up the number of American advisors in South Vietnam, He looked like a moderate. It was a political masterstroke. Temporarily very rewarding, but it would have horrible costs in the long run. Um, The Tonkin Gulf Resolution has been condemned rightly, rightly, I think, as an absolutely inexcusable abuse of the public trust. Fact is, the president deliberately misled the Congress in order to obtain powers to wage war without a constitutionally required declaration of war. He lied to the American people, and he ultimately put American soldiers in harm's way in order to further his own crass political ends. This is one of those issues, I talked about how how on the other hand was kind of going to be the theme of this class. This is one of those issues where there really is no on the other hand. It was just a rotten thing to do. It was an abuse of power, and Johnson should be justifiably condemned for it. On the other hand. I have to stress these were not unprecedented powers that the Congress conferred upon Johnson. Congress had done exactly the same thing on two previous occasions. Once in 1955, when it granted Dwight Eisenhower's request for a Formosa resolution, and once in 1957, when it granted Eisenhower's uh, the so-called Eisenhower Doctrine for the Middle East. In fact, as we know from this course, Uh, Ever since the onset of the Cold War, Congress had been very loath to question presidential decisions or limit presidential power in foreign affairs. It's different in domestic affairs, like integration. Congress gets very involved in that matters like that. Or taxation. Or infrastructure. You find Congress all over that. But when it comes to foreign policy, basically they're willing to allow the president to chart his own course. As I mentioned in a previous lecture, Harry Truman never got a congressional declaration of war to fight in Korea in 1950. He was required to by the Constitution, but he didn't get it. Technically, that wasn't a war. It was a UN police action. And as I mentioned in another lecture, in 1954, Eisenhower asked the Congress to grant him the authority to launch an airstrike to relieve the French garrison at Dien Ben Phu in Vietnam. But in this instance, Congress, led by minority leader Lyndon Johnson, turned Eisenhower down. It was too soon after Korea. Memories of that war were too fresh. However, in 1955, just a year later, when the islands of Keelung and Matsu were being bombarded by the communist Chinese in the straits between Formosa and the mainland, Eisenhower asked for what came to be known as the Formosa Resolution. And this resolution granted Eisenhower the power to take whatever military action he felt was necessary to protect the nationalist Chinese on Formosa. And this was granted by a wide margin. And again, in 1957, when there was evidence of a communist insurrection in Lebanon, Eisenhower asked for what he termed the Eisenhower Doctrine that gave him the freedom to dispatch American forces at any time to protect US interests in the Middle East. And Congress passed the Eisenhower Doctrine by an overwhelming margin. So Johnson made clear when asking for the Tonkin Gulf resolution that, quote, I do not ask for anything beyond the discretion granted to Dwight Eisenhower in 1955 and 1957, end quote. So while the manner in which the Tonkin Gulf Resolution was obtained was indefensible, it itself was not unprecedented, but its consequences were. And that's the topic we'll pick up next time. I'll see you next week.
0: You can watch Lectures in History every weekend on American History TV. We take you inside college classrooms to learn about topics ranging from the American Revolution to 9-11. That's Saturday at 8 p.m. at midnight.